If you go through the book of Amos, um, you begin to realize that Amos the prophet is uh, really after the Israelites, God's people, for a whole host of bad behavior, things they're doing that he's calling out. Uh, um, he's calling out their violence, their idolatry, their mistreatment of the poor, the fact that they don't care about justice or righteousness. Uh, he's calling out their corruption in their law system. He's calling out the oppression that they're causing uh, and the suffering they're causing to the underprivileged. So it's all these, all these behaviors that uh, Amos is saying God is against. This morning, though, we come to a chapter, chapter 6, where Amos begins to look at what's behind the behaviors. In a sense, he begins to look at the heart of the people of Israel. When I use the word heart, in our culture, when we use the heart, we kind of gravitate to the notion that it's referring to our emotions. And sometimes we take that into scripture but that's incorrect. When you see the word heart in the scriptures, it's not talking about your emotions. Uh, when they talk about your emotions, they use a word, word called splachna, which means your guts. That's what they talk about in terms of emotions. When, that, when you see the word heart, it's talking about that inner part of you where your will resides, where your true identity resides, where your core being is. That's the heart. Uh, um, so, so when he says we're to love God with all our heart, he's not saying you're to work up this emotional response. He's saying with your inner being, with your will, with all that you are, with the very core of your being, love God. When I think of heart, um, I always think of a Tootsie Pop. Um, you know, the candy on the outside is like our behaviors, how we live, but the nugget on the inside is the heart. And there's a connection between those two. What's going on in the heart always manifests itself in the behavior. So Amos begins talking about the heart of God's people in this passage. And I think we want to, to, to listen carefully. Uh, let me tell you two reasons why. It's easy to go to the book of Amos and because he's attacking all these things going on in their culture and society, assume that Amos is attacking all the negative things in our society and culture. And there's some application there, but what we have to remember that Amos is tailoring his remarks towards Israel who are under a covenant with God. In other words, he's talking to God's people. So when we read Amos, we have to apply it first and foremost to us, the church, to to God's people here now. Uh, irregardless whether, you know, we think the society is corrupt and there's all kinds of ways it is, that's not his audience. His audience is us. Second, we need to listen carefully because as you go through the book of Amos, you begin to understand that he's talking to the haves, not the have-nots. He's talking to the people who are in power. He's talking to, to the rich. He's talking to, to the upper echelon. He's talking to the, the 5% who are in control. And again, that's us. Whether we like it or not, we have won the historical lottery. We, we, we are more fortunate, more privileged, more powerful, more in control of our lives and, and, and our world than any generation before us. 
So his words may have special application to us because with that position of privilege come certain dangers and temptations. Um, and I think Amos gets to some of those these, this morning when he talks about the heart, what's really going on, the inner stuff. So with that in mind, I want us to read together Amos chapter 6, and then we're going to point out three things going on in their heart, look at how those result in certain behaviors, and then actually turn the table a little bit and talk about God's heart, how God responds to all this. So Amos chapter 6, woe to you who are complacent in Zion, and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria. You notable men of the foremost nation to whom the people of Israel come. Go to Kalna and look at it. Go from there to Great Hamath and then go down to Gath and Philistia. Are they better off than your two kingdoms? Is their land larger than yours? You put off the day of disaster and bring near a reign of terror. You lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fattened calves. You strum away on your harps like David and improvise, improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and use the finest lotions. But you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Therefore, you will be among the first to go into exile. Your feasting and lounging will end. The sovereign Lord has sworn by himself... The Lord God Almighty declares, Abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. If ten people are left in one house, they too will die. And if the relative who comes to carry the bodies out of the house to burn them asks anyone who might be hiding there, Is anyone else with you? And he says, No. Then he will go on to say, Hush, we must not mention the name of the Lord. For the Lord has given the command. And he will smash the great house into pieces and the small house into bits. Do horses run on the rocky crags? Does one plow the sea with oxen? But you have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. You who rejoice in the conquest of Lodabar and say, Did we not take Karnaim by our own strength? For the Lord God Almighty declares, I will stir up a nation against you, Israel, and will oppress you all the way from Libo Hamath to the valley of Arabah. So three things are going on inside the heart of the people of God at this point. We see the, the first in uh, chapter 6, verse 1. He says, woe to you who are complacent in Zion and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria. The very first thing that's, that's awry in their heart is this issue of complacency. This word means being anxious, or in this sense, not being anxious, not caring, uh, not being troubled. And I think what Amos is saying to the, the people is, you know, you don't care about what you should care about. You don't hate what God hates. You don't love what God loves. You have displaced passions and misaligned, a misaligned heart. 
Don't care about what you should. What, what is keeping you up at night is not the things that should be keeping you up at night. You don't care. Something's wrong that what you do care about is not what you should care about. That reality about their heart, that piece of brokenness, raises the question for us is, what, what do we care about? Last month, we had our staff retreat, and we were talking about the Lord's Prayer and the nature of the content of our prayers. So one of the exercises we, we did was we created a, a pyramid of God's concerns. And what I asked them to do in groups is to get together and talk about those things are really important to God and to create kind of a, a list of priorities and put the things that are most important to God up here at the top of the pyramid and, and, and then work your way down. And then those things that aren't important to God leave, leave off. So, so it's pretty interesting. Uh, there was a bit of a consensus. God really concern, cares about the fact that we love him. You know, that fits. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, strength, and soul. And then that we love others. That matters to him. And then uh, people put, you know, God's really concerned about his kingdom coming. Seek God's kingdom first. So that seems to be a concern. And then the list kind of expanded into all kinds of things. God really cares about obedience. God cares about character. You know, God cares about the poor. God cares about the alien, the, what we call the quartet of the vulnerable, the alien, the widow, the poor, the orphan. You see that again and again in Scripture. It's really an interesting thing. I would challenge you to do this is make that little triangle. And as you read the scriptures, start writing down the things that God cares about, the things that are part of his agenda and start placing them in terms of where you think in terms of priorities. Got a little more convicting though, because the next thing I ask them to do is to think about the things they pray about and uh, put them where they belong in terms of God's uh, pyramid of care. One of the pieces of feedback we got is, you know, this was pretty convicting because I discovered that most of the things I pray about aren't in the triangle. It's true. It's interesting to start thinking, what are the things that capture our concern, our care, our passion? Are they things that God cares about? And one of the ways you measure that is to think about what you give your time, effort, energy, and money to. Where do we put all of our energy and our prayers? Are they things that are inside the triangle or outside the triangle? Do we have misplaced passions? Uh, Do we care about what God cares about? Do we hate what God hates? Do we love what God loves? Has his heart captured our heart. <laughs> I was thinking about myself this, this morning. You know, I'm really nervous about tonight and the Green Bay Packers. And I've come to the conclusion it's probably not in the triangle. <laughs> Keep trying to make it fit, but I don't think it does. <laughs> what do we care about? The second broken piece in their heart 
is really having to do with this issue of security. If we go back to verse 1. He says, Woe to you who are complacent in Zion and to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria. Now, Mount Samaria was a fortress, and because of the natural topography, it was very difficult for an invading army to capture. So basically what Amos is saying is, you're placing your security in your military superiority. Right? And you remember what's going on in the history of Israel at this time. They have just defeated all their enemies. So, so they're feeling very secure. You know, it's kind of like playing king of the mountain. Right now, they're on the top, you know. In fact, it says this. Well, to you are complacent, Zion. Wait, go back. Thank you. And to you who feel secure on Mount Samaria, you notable men of the foremost nation. You guys are at the top. Uh, Everybody looks up to you. Your nation is at the top. In fact, everybody in Israel is coming. They think you're terrific. You're the king of the mountain. But notice how he responds. Response. He says it's a false security. He says, go to Kalna and look at it. Go from there to the great Hamath and then go down to Gath and Philistia. These are all territories or nations that Israel conquered. They used to be, on the, t- they used to be the king of the mountain. The problem is when you play king of the mountain, you're only king for a while. Because there's always people trying to bring you down. He says, are they better off than your two kingdoms? Their land larger than yours? Look at what they're at now. They're not there anymore. You're king of the mountain. But that's only temporary for a time. So this raises the issue of where do we place our trust? Do we fall victim to a false security? What do we think is going to keep us secure. And this is a big issue for us in our culture because we have so much control of our environment and so many things to place our trust in. I mean, we have amazing technology. We have incredible health care. We have retirement accounts and ways to look for retirement and this, this great social uh, safety net. Um, it's easy for us. And obviously, we're, at the, we're the king of the mountain, right? Our military might is undeniable. So we're feeling pretty secure, pretty safe. But God is saying, you know, that's an illusion. We think if we have control, then we're secure. But do you know control is illusionary? Unless you place your trust in the one who knows the beginning from the end and has control of everything in between, it's a false security. But man, do we try to control our lives? I love the illustration that Francis Chan gives. He, he gets a long rope and the rope actually goes off stage. And if you look at the end of the rope, there's a little section of it that's white. Then there's a piece of red tape and then the rope goes on and off the stage. And he says, this little section represents your life. This is what you live. And this little red section, that, that's the end of your life. He says, what's really fascinating about us is we spend all this part of our life worrying about this little portion of life and forgetting that after that little portion of life is done, we have all eternity. <laughs> and we're so 
wanting control and security, we, we spend all our resources preparing for that last 10 years so we can feel secure, never realizing, hey, it's going to end. And what really matters is not the little red tape the last 10 years of life. What really matters is all that comes after that. And if you want to be secure, you want to live during this time to impact your security in that time. And that means you have to be connected to him. Friday, my wife got an email that let her know Sister Monica died. Sister Monica was one of her patients. She was 88 years old. She was a Catholic nun. And uh, she was a feisty (laughs) woman. Uh, At age 87, she ran a half marathon. She was proud of the fact that she finished first in her category. (laughs) Of course, she was the only person in her category. (laughs) She was this lovely woman who gave her whole life to the poor, helping AIDS victims, serving others. It's an amazing lady. And we began to realize that at this moment in her life, she was living in a nursing home. It wasn't a very high-class nursing home. And they weren't taking great care of her. Um, She had a bucket list, and when she was in, she was talking about the things she wanted to do on her bucket list uh, uh, before she, she, she passed away. One was to run the marathon. One was to go to a Bronco game. So we were trying to get tickets for the Bronco game for her, but she passed away. I was thinking about her. Now, she didn't spend much time thinking about that little red section of her life. And quite honestly, it wasn't very good. But I guarantee you at this particular moment, she could care less. Because she placed her security not there, but into what was to come. I was listening to a man named Greg Thomas Thompson. He's a pastor, Trinity Presbyterian Church in West Virginia. He was doing a seminar, and he was he was talking about this issue of spiritual formation. He says, you know. The goal of spiritual formation is to work virtue into your life. And he said, we, we kind of have this notion in our circles that if we sit around and talk about the Bible and have insight into the Bible, that will result in virtue in our lives. And he says, you know, the, the fact is that just is not true. He said, truth is, is really important. But the only way you get virtue into your life is to practice. So he's going back to all these, uh, they're called rules, uh, the monastic rules, like the rule of St. Benedict. Uh, the, the rule of Bernard of Clairvaux. And he's trying to take those rules that were instructions about how to live and you, you kind of make up this list that you follow on a daily, ongoing basis to practice to get virtue in your life. He was talking about the rule of St. Benedict and uh, he, he said one of the things you do under the rule is every morning when you get up, you remind yourself by looking in the mirror and reciting these words. Momento more. Momento more. Which means, remember, you will die. Remember, you will die. And he said, you know, I've been doing that. And he says, strange, it has a real way of messing with your perspective about life. 
Because it forces you to think about what's important. Actually, in the monasteries, they would put, put that memento more on the sundials. So every time you looked at the clock, <laughs> you were reminded, oh yeah, this is just temporary. Memento more. See, the truth is, folks, we have very little control. And because that's true, the only place we can place our security is in him. We were meeting with our small group this last week and uh, talking about Amos. And I, I began the evening by having everybody go around and share a positive and a negative from their week. We got to one gal in our group, just a great gal. Her and her husband have one kid, and that kid is just kind of a miracle baby. So they're pretty focused on keeping this little girl safe and making sure everything's right for her. And she was talking about this. And one of the things they've done is they put her in a charter school for a host of good reasons. But part of, part of it, and she said this, was, I just want to keep her safe, you know, because uh, um, everything's invested in, in her and she was at work and couldn't have access to her phone. She got back to her phone after a particular client and she had a voicemail from the school. So she begins to check the voicemail and all it says, it's a robocall, and all it says is there has been an incident at the school. And she said her inside just flipped. Because all of a sudden she's thinking, what, what, what's happened? Is my kid safe? Uh, I put her there so she could be safe. And, uh, and she said, I realized at that moment, I just have no control. She was scared to death. She got on the email and found out there was an incident at the school. There, there was some report of a weapon. The police were there. The building was shut down. Now, I think one of the most terrifying things for parents uh, with the whole Columbine and shooter thing is, is it's broken through the illusion that we have control, that we we can manage life and control all that's going to happen. And the truth is, we can't. So the only viable option we have is to place our security and our trust into the God who knows the beginning from the end and controls everything in between. Where do you place your trust? The last thing that's wrong and broken in their heart has to do with their pride. And if we jump down to verse 8, the sovereign Lord has sworn by himself, the Lord God Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. We'll deliver up the city and everything in it. Uh, the pride of Jacob is just the pride of Israel. Jacob's a figurative way of referring to Israel. And, and this word abhor is a strong emotional word that God hates this, that he regards it with hate, that he loathes it, that he detests it. Pride is interesting. The word literally means the height. And it's this notion that when we take ourselves and place ourselves at the top, at the height, um, we're guilty of pride. Actually, I like to think of pride this way. Um, it's like our lives are this big circle. And in the center of our lives, um, we place something. And, and oftentimes, what we place there is the big eye, ourselves. And God hates that. And the question we have to ask is, why does God hate that? 
And the reason God hates that is because that is the essence of idolatry. Because to place ourselves, to put the eye there in the center means we have to take God off of his throne. It means that he's not the center of our lives, that we are the center of our lives. And in our culture, <laughs> that's rampant. We, we are an incredibly self-centered people. You know, they had done a study. In 1950, they, they asked seniors in high school, are you a very important person? And 12% of the seniors in high school said, yeah, I'm a very important person. They did the same study in 2005. They asked them, are you a very important person? And seniors in high school, guess how many? 80% said, I'm a very important person. They've done, Time Magazine did a survey asking Americans, uh, are you in the top 1% in terms of earning and salary? And 19% of the people they surveyed said they're in the top 1% of those people. America ranks 25th in math skills. 25th. If you go ask uh, Americans if they're very good in math, they'll tell you, yeah, I'm really good at math. And it's not. You know what we're good at? We're good at thinking we're really good. We're number one at thinking we're number one. We're incredibly competent in thinking we're competent. David Brooks writes about this. We're an overconfident people. And we've magnified self. And it's true. We, we have even developed a brand now around ourselves, the brand of self. And you can see it. You go on Facebook or on Twitter. If you go there, do you know what one of the most common pictures on Facebook and Twitter is? Selfie, right? And now we even have selfie sticks, right? Look at me. This is where I'm at now. No, I'm here. <laughs> Folks, doesn't that seem a little absurd? I got to admit, we have a selfie stick, okay? <laughs> I did not buy it. Never used it, but we have a selfie stick. You see, we've designed life to rotate around us. And we're self-centered. And it's all about me. And it's all about I. Now, what is interesting, I want you to realize this. These are things that are happening internal in the hearts, the core of God's people. You're like the nugget. But they're resulting in behaviors. And in this text, chapter 6, Amos tells us what those behaviors are. And I think we need to take a moment and recognize the behaviors because they're behaviors that sometimes we fall victim to. Okay? So the first behavior that the heart of God's people results in is self-indulgence. Let's go back and read chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. He says, You lie on beds adorned with ivory and lounge on your couches. You dine on choice lambs and fatted cows and you strum away on harps like David and improvise on musical instruments. You drink wine by the bowlful and you use finest lotions, but you do not grieve over the ruin of Joseph. Because they don't care about what God cares about, they simply care about themselves, so they indulge themselves in luxury. Luxury. 
Now, it's not that the luxuries in and of themselves are bad. It's that they're indulging themselves when the world around them has so much need. It's not nothing wrong with being a rich Christian. But it does is something to wrestle about with when we're a rich Christian in an age of hunger. You see, it's the context that raises the issue. We have been given incredible resources, but with that comes a responsibility to use those resources for others. And if we consume all those resources simply on ourselves, then we're very guilty of the same thing that Israel was. Because we've put ourselves at the center of our lives and we don't care about what God cares about. So we use all our resources to produce this false security. And we're exactly like them. Second thing that happens is they don't care about the common good. If you go back to the verse, verse uh, uh, 6b and 7, he says, but you don't grieve over the ruin of Joseph, right? Joseph is another way of referring to Israel figurative. You don't, you don't care uh, about what's going on in your culture and in your society. At that moment in time, the very wealthy in Israel were getting more and more and more wealthy and the poor were getting more and more poor because the, wealth were building, the wealthy were building their wealth on the backs of the poor. And there was just, I, I mean, the poor were just being obliterated, suffering. And these people said, hey, you know, as long as I have mine, I'm okay. If they don't have theirs, that's their problem. And if you would have got on them about their luxury, they would have told you, hey, I earned this. I, I have a right to this. I work uh, long hours to get this. This is my stuff. And God is saying, not so fast. I gave you intelligence. I allowed you to be born when you were born. I put you in the country you were cunt- where you are. I gave you the parents that you have. You have all these privileges. That has nothing to do with all oh, your incredible success, but everything to do with it. You think it's up to you, but it's not. And I've blessed you so that you can bless others. But to bless others, you have to care about them to begin with. And their culture is crumbling around them. And they couldn't care less. And not only that, they're beginning to rig the system. They're perverting justice. If we go back... Verse 12. This is really an interesting comment by Amos. He says, Do horses run on the rocky crags? Do you ever race a horse on a rock out? Of course not. That would be absurd. It gets even more so. Does, does one plow the sea with oxen? No, no, you can't. That's what, that would be absurd. And then he says, Well, you have done something even more absurd. You have turned justice into poison and the fruit of righteousness into bitterness. What does he mean? You see, justice, the law courts, their whole system was, was supposed to be designed to protect the innocent, protect the weak, especially from the powerful, so that they couldn't be taken advantage of. But they had corrupted their courts. They were paying off the judges. Now the, the, the system was rigged for the rich and the powerful against the poor and resourceless and the disenfranchised. They had taken the very thing that's supposed to protect them and twisted it to protect their own interests. And said, well, you know, it's the law. 
You know, honestly, I get tired of people when we talk about the immigration issue saying, well, those guys, they broke the law, so they shouldn't be here. And nobody's asking the question, wait, wait a second, is, is the law just? Or was the law designed to protect us, you know, the people who got here first so we can keep our stuff? I don't know what the answer is, but I do know that the system is broken, and I do know that God really cares about the immigrant. They're, they're in his pyramid of concern. We better do something and not just rest on our laurels and say, well, it's the law. Send it back. I'm not sure God's pleased with that. Somehow we have to find a way for justice to roll down. Can't rig the game so it's to always our benefit. It's not the heart of God. Well, what is the heart of God? It is really interesting. We talked about the heart of God's people and the consequences in terms of their behavior. So how is God reacting to all this? And God's reacting, and I think if we look at his reaction, we see a manifestation of his heart. So I want, want to read how God reacts. And it's very severe. He says, the sovereign Lord has sworn by himself. Now, the reason God swears by himself is because he's the greatest thing you can swear by. It's just, he's saying, this is going to happen. I'm swearing by me. And guess what? Since I'm God, I'm going to make sure it happens. He swears by himself, the Lord God Almighty declares, I abhor the pride of Jacob and detest his fortresses. I will deliver up the city and everything in it. And look at the the extent of the judgment. If 10 people are left in one house, they will die. And if the relative who comes to carry the bodies out of the house to burn them, as anyone who might be behind there, is there anyone else? And he says, no. Then he will go on and say, hush, we must not mention the name of the Lord. I mean, if God finds out we're here, we're doomed. God is ticked. And angry. For the Lord has given the command, He will smash the great house into pieces and the small house into bits. In verse 14 at the end, we find out how He's going to do it. For the Lord God Almighty declares, I will stir up a nation against you, Israel, that will oppress you all the way from Lebo Hamath to the valley of Arabah. We, we read that and we're confronted with the wrath and the judgment of God and some people begin to question, well, is God really good and loving? I mean, if that's what he's like, it makes us a bit nervous. But I want you to understand something. God in his orientation towards the world, he is not one of opposition. He loves the world, but he hates sin. So what we see played out here is exactly what you would expect if you understand the heart of God. In fact, let's let's explore that just for a moment. I think this might be helpful. If we think about God's heart, this is not all of his heart, but it'll be relevant to what we're talking about. We know God has a heart of love. He loves. We know that God has a heart of grace. He extends unmerited favor that manifests out of his love. We also know that God is just. And we also know that he is holy. That's interesting to think, okay, that's God's heart. How would his heart manifest in terms of his behavior? 
What are the options? Let's look at them. First option. Well, he could do nothing. Right? I think that's what uh, some people think a loving God would do. It's nothing. But I would suggest to you that that's really not an option for God because it wouldn't manifest his character. If he does nothing, it doesn't show his justice or his holiness. And if he does nothing, it doesn't show his love or his grace. If you're one of the refugees from Syria and your house has been destroyed and your relatives have been killed and, and you think God does nothing forever, you want nothing to do with that kind of God. Because that kind of God is not loving to you, he's not gracious to you, and he's certainly not just or holy. He, he's nothing. You you see, doing nothing is not an option. If you look at history, one of the things you discover is that history is absolutely brutal. And if there is a loving and holy and just and gracious God, then at times he will intervene and he has to judge and exercise his wrath because it has to be a manifestation of his love. Think of the, the program Extreme Makeover where they go into a dilapidated house and they redo things. What's the very first thing they have to do in the house? Demolition. The bad has to be yanked out. And then a new house can be created. So if that is God's heart, then doing nothing is not an option. So we get what he could do. He could intervene without warning or patience. And in fact, he could do that and be justified in doing it. And at times he does. It's interesting when I think about that, the time I think of him intervening instantaneously doesn't come from the Old Testament, which is what we would expect. It comes from the New Testament. Remember the story Ananias and Sapphira? They say they sold some land and gave it to the church and they didn't give all the money to the church, to the little community. And God strikes them dead. And you go, holy crud. Where did that come from? Well, it was a manifestation of God's love and his justice. But it's a a love for his church and his community. And he says, I'm nipping this this kind of stuff, lying to the Holy Spirit in the the bud. (laughs) And, And it says in that passage that the whole church was filled with fear and awe. No kidding. No kidding. So he could intervene without warning or patience. Or he could warn, plead, instruct, woo, and wait. And that's exactly what we have going on in the book of Amos. Amos shows up. He says, look, this is God is unhappy. He's not pleased. And again and again in the book, it says, seek God and live. Seek God and live. God is incredibly responsive to repentance. And he's incredibly patient. I mean, the destruction of Assyria doesn't come for 50 years. Why? Because God is waiting. He's waiting. It's a manifestation of his love and his grace. He's waiting. Come on, turn around, Israel. Turn around. Seek me. But eventually judgment has to come if he is who he says he is. So, how does he judge? He could judge Passively allowing judgment. You know, every sin contains within it the seed of its own destruction. In, in a sense, what goes around comes around. 
Israel was incredibly violent when it took over other nations. As a result, those nations are incredibly violent when they take over Israel because they sowed the seed of destruction. That's true in our lives. We think there are no victimless crimes or no victimless sins. That's not true. There's always a victim, and one of those victims is us. When we sin, we're sowing seeds of destruction in our own life. That's why, that's why God reacts to sin because he knows how devastating and destructive it is. It eventually brings death. So at times God waits and allows judgment to come on its own. But sometimes he actively brings judgment. And in Amos, we find out that he's the one ultimately behind the nation of Assyria coming to judge his people. And when they come, it, it, it is a manifestation of the very heart of God. He's too loving to not judge sin. It violates his justice. Compromises his holiness. Patiently he has waited. But the day will come. Now these next two are really interesting and we don't think of them in this context, but I think we need to. The next thing is he could take judgment on himself. And what's fascinating, this is the very thing that Jesus does in dying on the cross. This is the ultimate manifestation of his love and grace and his justice and holiness. I mean, Jesus dying on the cross is this this brilliant move by God to bring salvation to people. Because Jesus becomes our atonement. He becomes the payment for our sin. And because sin is paid for, it satisfies his justice and holiness. But what is motivating him to do that is his incredible love and grace. You see, when we minimize the wrath and the judgment of God, unintentionally, unintentionally we're minimizing the love and grace of God. But when we understand how vehemently God reacts to sin and really embrace that, what it really does is it magnifies the incredible love of Jesus. Because we begin to understand what the price was that he paid on the cross. Because he becomes sin for us and now becomes the complete target of all God's wrath and on the cross pays for all evil, all sin. All death out of his love. And that should make us walk away in awe. The very last thing that God could do is he could renew and redeem all things. And in Amos chapter 9, we're going to read about this because that's where the book ends. And what Amos is doing is he's saying, someday. God's going to intervene on a massive scale. And when he does, all things will be made right. All things will be put into what they should have originally been. They'll be redeemed and there'll be a renewed heaven and a renewed earth and those two will become together. And we will live in a world dominated by the presence of God where there's no more tears and no more death, no more suffering, no more pain, no more cancer, no more blindness, no more lame, 
No more injustice. And you go, I can't wait. I can't wait. Here's the truth, folks. We all have broken hearts. (laughs) And the question is, are we going to allow Jesus to mend them? Because he's the only answer to the blackness and the brokenness in in every one of us. And that's why when, when we come to Christ, what's really going on is we're given a new heart. We're made new. You know, again and again, we participate in the Lord's Supper. And the reason we do that is because we are proclaiming what Christ has done for us on the cross, that we've been recipients of this new heart. This morning, we're going to give you an opportunity to prepare. And we want you to prepare by asking those three questions. And when you've wrestled before God with those three questions, we want you to come and particularly in the Lord's Supper, we want you to break off a piece of the bread that represents his body and dip it in the cup that represents his blood and then partake. And realize that when you partake, what you're proclaiming is that you have a heart made new by the sacrifice of Christ Jesus. Take a moment and reflect and prepare for the Lord's Supper.